Today's episode of The Thriller Zone with David Temple is sponsored by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller. Hello and welcome to The Thriller Zone. I'm your host, David Temple. And on today's show, we're going to peel back the cover and dig deep into a political thriller that had me reading right up until the time of our podcast. Oh my goodness. David Pepper is my guest today. The book is a simple choice. It's got it all. Intrigue, politics, mystery. I really thoroughly enjoy it. So how about this? Without any further ado, please welcome David Pepper to The Thriller Zone. Welcome to The Thriller Zone. Thank you. It's very, very nice to have you. I literally, ra- rarely do I uh, finish at the uh, leading edge of the finish line, but I literally just finished this book like oh, inside cool. of five minutes ago. Wow. And it, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, I think you got, I think you got a head on your hands, David. I'm just, Thank I'm you. just guessing. Good. So you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. There's nothing... Nothing better to hear when you write a book that people like it. No, it was a hell of a ride. I got up at about 4.30. I, I start my day early, and uh, I hadn't gotten it finished yet. And I'm like, no, I, I got to get this thing done. And so, uh, wow. I, I had another uh, legal thriller uh, writer on recently, and uh, it it renewed my energy, passion, love of political thrillers because, uh, you know, I grew up reading – uh, Scott Turow, David Baldacci, and you know, and these cats, and I was just like, uh, it, it's so interesting to read somebody who's on the inside, which we're going to get to, right? Because you know, you're really coming from the real deal. Good, that's great. I love the that's your response. All right, now I I like to get to know before we get to know the book. I like to get yeah. to know the the artist behind it, and you know. Uh, I'll rattle off a few things here. B.A. from Yale, J.D. from Yale Law School, clerk for judge on U.S. Court of Appeals, et cetera, et cetera. But what raised my eyebrows, David, and and just as a part of your professional background, is when I read that you worked in St. Petersburg, Russia, for the Washington-based Center of Strategic and International Studies. Now, that right there, for a guy who grew up doing you know showbiz, it's really impressive. <laughs> Well, wait, wait till we get into it. Uh, I mean, just so you know, I, I don't think it's in there. Now, I, I had the very Forrest Gump-like experience of uh, being in meetings with Vladimir Putin for several years. Um, he was the um, vice mayor of St. Petersburg, Russia, a, a beautiful city. Uh, and my project was there to do sort of technical assistance to help St. Petersburg, which was always the westernmost city of the country of Russia, uh, take undertake the kind of reforms that would make them a place that would it would do well in a in a more capitalist economy, attract Western business and all that. And we were working that the the head of the project on the Russian side was this wonderful mayor who was one of the leaders of the democracy fight in Russia. His name was Anatoly Sobchak, very inspiring figure, had been the dean of the law school, but his right hand person was Vladimir Putin who was assigned to be the liaison to my project. So I would meet with him. I would. I, I basically lived in Washington, but would stay in St. Petersburg for weeks at a time. 
He's the guy who would set up all of our meetings. We'd meet with him in the beginning. He'd walk through our schedule. We'd meet with him throughout. He would stand in for the mayor when the mayor wasn't there. So yeah, this was like early, mid-1990s, 93, 94, 95. And looking back, you know, I'll, I'll just say, when if you were watching closely, when Yeltsin was basically ending his time mm-hmm. in the late 90s, out of the blue, they said, we are now announcing this former spy is going to be the sitting vice uh, prime minister. His name is Vladimir Putin. And it was obvious when they made that announcement, he was going to replace Yeltsin. And, and it was shocking because I thought, wait a second, that was the guy in St. Petersburg who was the quiet guy. He was not one of the impressive intellectual pro-democracy figures. He was the opposite. So even at the time, he was an odd fit in St. Petersburg. So six years later, after I left and was at law school, to have him become the president of the country was shocking. And obviously now, given all that he's doing, it's, it's, all, it's turned into downright disturbing and worse. But yeah, I was there back when he was probably in his early 40s. Uh, and you knew he was a former spy, by the way. There are moments in some of my books where I describe scenes that are based on experiences I had interacting with him. Um, I'll just give a quick example. I don't know if you've done business overseas, but you always have a translator. Yeah. He never spoke a word of English the entire time we met with him. It, and I spoke some Russian, so I would sort of keep up on both sides of the conversation. But about 40 minutes into one meeting, after years of meeting, the interpreter clearly made a mistake of a word he said, and he corrected her in English. (laughs) And that's when we were like, there's a scene in my first book where I have the Russian do that. The shock that, wait, this guy's been speaking pretty good English the whole time, but never let on. And, And going back to the guy you didn't want to mention... Given that experience, whenever I saw him meeting with Trump, I thought, oh, my God, he is running circles around Donald Trump. Circles. If when he was meeting with us in a fr- this was a friendly uh, a partnership, he never let us know that he was speaking English. So he, he was he was very serious, sober, could clearly didn't care much about democracy. But also the former spy came through in, in many different ways. Wow. What a great story. <laughs> Yeah, I would love to have been a fly on the wall when all of a sudden, oops. Yeah, exactly. That was my thought. Wait, he just, and it wasn't some easy word. It was like some complicated, you know, I don't know what the equivalent, but it was some complicated enough word that it meant he knew a lot of English. It wasn't like a green or red or something. Yeah. And and I always, you know, and again, I, one of the things I think about writing, going back to, Capturing that moment in a book to me was perfect because it's not just the fact of it, the experience of the shock. So I have in my first book, I have the Russian oligarch. Right. He has an entire meeting with um, a bunch of American lawyers and lobbyists, and they're speaking the whole time in, in English through a translator. And he never speaks English, but at the end of the meeting, he gets up and says, wonderful meeting. Thank you all very much. And, and it's just, I'm trying to capture the same effect I had when Putin did that to us. Because you often wonder, you know, especially when you're in a situation like that and you may have an aside, like something like, God, this guy's a real idiot, isn't he? Oh. Uh, and, oh, and you're afraid that, oh, I would never say that because, oh, but he clearly doesn't speak English. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Everyone in, the, in my book and in life, you look around, you think, okay, what did we say? Over the last hour, we should right. 
Right, right. And now we know in hindsight, and that was in front of Vladimir Putin. <laughs> uh, while we're on that, but before we bounce off, does and and if this is a loaded question, you can uh, circumvent it with any way you'd like. But what do you think? And, and and I always I tend to stay away from politics in general, but you are clearly a political writer, so I want to ask this question: What do you think about the current state of affairs, especially as it pertains to him? And I, we won't drill down on that versus Ukraine and that whole situation. But do you? Do you, what's your overall impression of, let's just do it this way, overall impression of him and the way he is handling the world today? It's, it's awful. It's awful. And, and all, all are kidding aside, it's really sad because when I was in Russia, it was a few years where we had all this optimism that it would go in a better direction. And we're seeing what happens when, you know, when I was there, there was some optimism. They'd become a real democracy. And over a few years, that looked like the future. Um, they had a real economic issues in the mid 90s so that it, they, they wanted a strong man. They voted for that versus a, a more democratic system. But it shows you how in just one generation you can go from optimism over a democratic direction and destroy it all through, you know, the, the, the propaganda and the misteaching of history. And so you have this country and I, I, I made good friends over there in, in St. Petersburg and I keep up with some of them. And I, my guess is I'll never for the rest of my life be back there, um, which is sad. It's this beautiful old, old city that, that had all this uh, art and, and, you know, I'd go to the ballet and it's just tragic. Honestly, it's, it's obviously horrific what's happening in Ukraine. Yes. But then one person, uh, corrupted by all that, you know, energy, money, everything else. So he's got this whole, you know, uh, coterie of of oligarchs bilking the system to take what had been a positive direction and just destroy it, and now use that state to destroy other countries and and wipe out. I mean, they're trying to right wipe out the entire history of Ukraine in front of all of us, and so it's really. Um, it's really horrible to watch. And I obviously I wouldn't have ever predicted that from my 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 interaction. You know, the um I will say this though, and this is something I think we need to think about as a country nationally. I also I would have said for the last decade, based on my interaction in Russia, that a guy like Putin is always sizing up the other side. He was sizing me up, and I'm sure I was 22. I probably wasn't impressing him very much. Right. <laughs> but I think a guy like him is always sizing up the strength of his adversary. Adversaries, yeah. And if he sees his adversary is weak, he moves in. He takes that space. If he sees his adversary is strong, he respects that strength. And it may be an uncomfortable tension, but that's better than showing the weakness that he then runs over. And, you know, one of the people involved in this project I worked on was Henry Kissinger. He was the American chair of it. Now, you would have thought, well, Russians wouldn't have liked that because Henry Kissinger was a big Cold Warrior. No, they loved that Kissinger was involved. Why? Because he was tough. And by sending a tough guy, they thought this is this is important for them. We want to meet with Kissinger. He's the strong one. That's how they assess it. He's the big tough guy. So I actually think, you know, to me, the way you deal long term with a Putin like figure, if you're America, if you're the president. Right. You need to be strong. And so, again, not to get partisan on this, but if they see a figure who's not strong, who will do what they want, who's who's saying, you know, or frankly, some of what Trump would say, 
running down NATO. That is the gift that they want. If they see someone who is standing up to them, it may be moment, there may be some fraught moments. But to me, that's the only way you'll get anywhere with them because that's how they think of themselves. We're tough. And if you're not tough, we are running you over. Yeah. And so I think we have to, you know, we have to be tough too. And so that would be my sort of, and I, I learned that when I was there. I could see it in the way they negotiated. And Putin is sort of the perfect example of someone who would think that way about being, you know, they, they loved, we would have Finland at the table because Finland's right next to St. Petersburg. Finland has 5 million people. They were so dismissive of Finland in their mind because it's a little country. They're little, they're not important like America and we are. So I think, you know, my, my long-term advice to anyone listen is you want to get anywhere with someone like that, you need to be strong and you need to show that strength or they will see you as weak and they'll run you right over. Well, there's a whole lot of bully mentality inside of that conversation, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, you, it, it, you, you don't, and we see this in politics all the time. And I actually have a theme in one of my books, Always Stand Up to Bullies. Um, there, it's, cla- it's classic bully. You, if you don't stand up to someone like Putin, if you don't show a, a, a strong backbone when he's being aggressive, he'll, he'll, he'll see it and he'll run right over you. And I really, um, and, and I think they thought, I think they thought that would be what happened on Ukraine too. Oh, these guys, you know, they pulled out of Afghanistan. They're not really willing to fight. They're not, we're just going to run right over. And I think Zelensky and frankly, the broader unified European front, they're not, you know, I'm sure they don't like it, but they also probably like, wow, they stood up. They're stronger than we thought they were. That move, I think, was predicated on assumption that the West would be weak because frankly, they've seen that weakness for some time. They've gotten away with things like this in other places and they presumed it would happen again this time. You know, it's so funny when you were, when we were talking, we were just talking a second of the air, I was having a flashback to seventh grade in the school lot. And there was this guy that picked on me all the time. I was a geek. He was a sports nut. And uh, he was always pushing and bullying on me and smacking me around. And one day I just thought, okay, I, what have I got to lose? And I just clocked him with everything I had. He never bothered me again. Same point. It really is just weak, generally weak guys who want to show off to the friends that say, hey, I'm bigger than him. And then when you find out, oh, that guy's going to stand up to me. That's a very elementary, pun intended, uh, example. And I think that that very basic dynamic is is playing on the world stage. And and a guy like that will get away with everything he can get away with until someone stands up and says, sorry, no more. There is... um, a underlying theme to this book outside of the the core story. And so I'm going to jump ahead and then we're going to come back because okay. I'm a big fan of reading acknowledgments because I like, again, it goes back to, I want to know about you. What made you create this story? What What's going on in your mind? And there's a short paragraph that caught my eye. And this is a great leading off place. Uh, you were in Seattle visiting two friends, I'm brothers, I'm guessing by their names, and a conversation with the family sparked an idea. And you you got on your flight and headed on back home, and you started the book. And it it, it made me go, oh, what what what's that spark that happened that triggered that thought? And can you share that? Because that's sure. how this whole book started. Yeah, yeah, and it's funny. I don't know how different other other people initially think of their book ideas, but for me, there's it's always been an aha moment. And then it all opens up once you start writing. 
this conversation was, it's actually a couple, um, and it was after a political event. And I'll look kind of ignorant here. They, they were talking about their kids and what their kids were doing. Their kids are in their mid-20s. And their kids were in um, either med school or post-med school work doing work around this technology called CRISPR. Oh, and, yeah. And I, I mean, and I, because I've been in politics too long and not science, I didn't know what that was. And most of your listeners will know that, will know what it is. But CRISPR is the is basically, and I don't get it. I don't go through the truly all the details in the book. But CRISPR is, is this very cutting edge gene therapy, gene splicing technology that really is leading to um, massive progress when it comes to treating cancer and other diseases. And when they were, but but also there is some controversy around it that once you start editing genes. If you're not really careful about what you're doing and what type of gene and what kind of edit, you could have downstream effects on the future of the human race where you're changing the genetic makeup of human beings. Oh, yeah. So it could be massively positive, and I think will be, but if you don't have some regiments and discipline around it and someone in some country starts messing with genes, you could also have all sorts of problematic things. And when they were done describing it, I don't, I think I said it. I said, they were describing it. We talked for maybe 15 minutes about it. And I said, I have my next book. <laughs> because I thought that's just too too fraught with a story to um, to just sit and talk about it. And, and it was that moment. And again, I obviously I layer politics into it. And all this stuff is ultimately going to be political. Sure. But when they were done describing that, that huge positive, huge, almost bizarre risk, throw it all together. And I thought I got a book to write and, yeah. and I started writing it right away. Well, I'm going to talk out of both sides of my mouth in this sentence, because I'm all, I'm the guy that usually says to my guests, okay, I'm not going to be this guy, David, that says to you, Hey, where do you get your ideas? Because it's the most elementary and semi-ridiculous question you could ask. However, when I saw that, it made me think I always love that spark of an idea. So I'm not asking you where you got ideas, but I wanted to know where that spark came from. So it's beautiful. And you're right. It's the aha moments. Those are the gems that you dig through in your subconscious that when it r rises to the surface, you're like, oh, that, that puppy's it right there. Yeah. And then, you know, by the way, then you spend the next year writing the book and you hope, geez, I hope I was right with that initial instinct. Right. Uh, because you put a lot of time and, and, you know, every book of mine has come in a short moment, an epiphany around sort of a key concept like that. And then you're all of a sudden thinking up the characters and the storyline, everything else. But in this one, I always felt good about it. And, and you know, I think there's going to be every year more and more awareness about this technique and, and what there's someone wrote a whole, uh, you know, there's several new books about it. But my goal was to capture the concept, but then wrap it in a story that, that's exciting, you know, whether or not you're someone who cares about the medical side of it or not. And hopefully I, I was able to achieve that. Well, on the downside, it looks like you and I, I'm assuming, share a similar tragic story in that uh, we have someone close to us that have has been uh, hit with cancer and yeah. uh, uh, me, my mother, and it is something that you you continue to say, we can send a man to the moon, but we can't find the cure for cancer. And we have yeah. all this technology and look what we've done in a hundred years. 
And so I want to say that uh, it, it caught my eye and, you know, there's nothing more important, as you said in the book, than finding uh, or fighting the fight against cancer. And so share with us and then just roll that into what this story is about, just so that we have a really clear side of that. Yeah. So I, it's fun. It's the timing's odd, but I wrote the book before my mother herself. She had fought breast cancer successfully a number of years ago. About two years ago, her back was really hurting and uh, in a very frustrating way. No one said to her for too long, hey, if you have back pain several years after breast cancer, it may be in your back. And, and I'm still so frustrated that that. So she spent months going to back doctors instead of back to her cancer doctor. And it turns out it had it had moved into her spine. Now, the good thing is she she is going through, uh, you know, getting getting this diagnosis is very tough. But through some hormonal therapy, she's actually fighting very well right now. And, oh, and you wouldn't even know she was struggling with it. Uh, but, um, but, you know, as I wrote the book now, finishing the book with that as the backdrop, I, I, you know, I, I do hope to capture what, you know, at this, once you're a certain age, everyone knows this fight, everyone knows this fight. And so the book is about politics and a thriller, but it's also about aging and it's about fighting this disease. And my hope is people who are fighting it, you know, they find something in the book as well. The other, the other thing about the book, I dedicated two people. One is my mother, and the other, you wouldn't know it from the way it's written, is Nate. That was the judge that I clerked for, and he oh. passed away in his mid nineties a couple years ago. And this is again, I don't want to have people think it's a book about just being old, right? But there's some parts of this book. You, you know, some of the main characters of the book are aging senators. And there were moments of this. So I clerked for Nate Jones, a Sixth Circuit former civil rights lawyer, a wonderful federal judge. We became very close. And he he died in his mid-90s, but at 93, he was living like a 45-year-old, very vivacious, very fun, very sharp. We co-taught a law school class together. And at one point, he said at one of his birthday parties, like 93 years old, he said to all of us, you don't understand why this party is so meaningful to me. Almost every single person in my entire life that I knew for the first half of my life is passed away. My whole world is gone. And you are helping me continue to live by letting me be in your world. It was a perspective I never forgot. And there are parts of my book where some of my older senators, so Gigi Fox from Florida and others, they're sharing that perspective with younger people in a way that I'm basically passing along this wisdom from a friend of mine who shared it with us in a way that I'll never forget. Right. And so the book does, you know, it's your typical thriller, but my hope is it adds some wrinkles around a cancer and some wrinkles around aging. And I've had some of my readers in their seventies email me saying, Oh my gosh, David, you captured wow. really well what some of us are seeing already, let alone in their 80s or 90s. So I try and bring in that as well as sort of the more standard thriller, you know, mechanisms that, that you're used to seeing. I don't know well, if you caught that stuff, but that's what that dedication also is to Nate and my own mother. I did. And it reflects a question that you pose that if you had the ability to save a loved one's life because of a terminal illness, what would you be willing to do to save their life? 
And of yeah. course, I immediately think of my mother who died of pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And when, when that came in, it came in like a freight train. And I remember going, I would do anything in the world to prolong her life. Right. And then that second part of that question, if you take it a step further, which is what the book is about, what would the most powerful people in the nation, in, in the leadership of our country do? And which is the perfect setup for the story. Yeah. And that really was. And that and I thought about that on that couch in Seattle. Put you about, you know, we know we have corruption in politics and that yeah. corruption is normally for a benefit of some sort. But the book asks the question, what if the benefit was that you could save the life of a loved one, which is a very sympathetic thing for anyone to want to do? What would we all do if we knew that we had a choice to save the life of someone who was who was deathly ill? And that's that's asked of most of the characters in the end. You know, my main character, Amity Jones, has to answer that. What would you do? Her mother is sick. She's returned to Ohio uh, despite the fact that she could have done all sorts of things in Washington, she's a former Supreme Court clerk. She's come home to take care of her dying mother. Uh, she's asked the question at some point, hey, we can save your mother's life, but you need to do X, Y, and Z. Will you do it? Just like the U.S. senators are asked that question. And, and you know, that's the title, A Simple Choice, which obviously, Nan, as the book says, it feels so simple at first, but everyone who makes that decision also faces a variety of very complicated consequences. Because it's, you know, like any deep moral choice, there, there are pluses and, and negatives. But that's really the, the question that almost everyone um, is asked. So what's interesting is, again, I love reader feedback. I already get the question. I already get people saying, well, I would do anything. Right. I think, I think those people who made that choice, I can't fault them for what they did. Others will say, oh, that's pretty. They crossed the line. So I really try and sort of have the whole book. I hope it's interesting. I hope it's a page turner. But I do think I think it will force readers to think about what w- what would they do? How far would they go? It does do that very thing for me. And it's interesting that you mentioned uh, page turner and so forth uh, as uh, occupational hazard. When I'm reading a stack, which I have quite a profound stack, I, I, I'll I'll eyeball. I'll admit it. OK, uh, 400 pages. So I kind of know where I've got to go. And I'm like, Jesus, 120 two chapters. Well, this is going to, and then you realize that the chapters, you know, I hope you'll take this as a compliment because I mean it that way. It reminds me of a, a kind of a James Patterson method and in, in pacing because those chapters just, they're like little, they're potato chips. You're snacking and you, you don't want to, you want to finish the bag. I, I love that you say that. Not everyone will read it that way, but I, I'll confess, I write like I like to read. Yeah. And there's nothing more painful to me then at 11 at night, I'm getting tired. And I, you all know, we all do this. You yep. look ahead to see when the chapter, I, I just started reading a new book last night. I did it. You look to see when the chapter ends to see if you're going to make it. <laughs> and what I like about my book is you're going to make it because it's not that far from ending. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I get it. You know, I hope that people really get to know my characters in the scenes, but my goal is not to overwhelm you with so much description that it's taking a six page chapter and making it 20 pages for no reason, but I want to indulge. I want you to get what you need to understand the character, to know the scene, but I don't want to kill you with so much that you're literally, again, dying to get to the end of that chapter. So with some readers, I think it's a surprise, but from my first book on, 
almost all the feedback I've gotten is, gosh, we love your short chapters. Like you give us what we need. It cuts. It doesn't, it doesn't dwell too much and it moves on to the next one. And by the way, I also, as, as you'll see, have more points of view. Yeah. I'm kind of, you're running with these different characters. You're kind of going back and forth. You don't, oh, don't rush because if you rush, you may get confused. You got to stick with it. But I find that anyone who's reading this at a normal speed um, is actually, it's moving along. And I, I write very purposefully to not overload you so that you get slowed down or bogged down into long, to me, again, maybe some of the famous writers that you're going to read no matter what will do it. But I've got people on the bookshelf in back of me where I'm into the page 35 of chapter one. I'm like, okay, I get it. Like, but it's too much. Just get us where we need to go and let me go to chapter two. So it, it, that's just my approach as a reader. Yeah. So I reflect it as well as I can. I'm glad it, I'm glad you, you agree with that. Well, and I'm going to start off by saying, dude, let me tell you something. And I hope I can call you dude. Seriously, probably because of the volume that I read, I will pick up a book. And if that chapter one, to your point, is 35 pages, and I'm like, if your first chapter is 35 and this is a thriller and I'm expecting this thing to fly, I think we're going to be in for a long ride, Billy. And so, no, I'm with you. And, and the second thing I was going to say is... You've got the perfect balance, not to blow smoke up your skirt, but uh, and I hope you're not wearing a skirt, but is that you give me just enough. I don't need, you know, I think the days, maybe the, unless you're a literary fan, okay, I mean, pure literary, the days of those long ex explanations and descriptions, I'm like, give me some credit. I, I got a pretty good idea how the world works and what's going on right. and um, so anyway, we're on the and same by the page. way, just so you know, I'm tough on my edits too. I'll go back through that book. And if I see it, so I, I think as I write, yeah. so often I'll have a chapter in there that was me sort of writing forward into the plot. I'm doing this right now in my next book. If I go back through, I'm like, Oh, I don't need that chapter anymore. I'm, I'm cutting aggressively again. I just don't want, again, it like, like any reader that finds something not credible. If you get that reader into that 30 page chapter and they're halfway through dying, they may never pick up the book again. Yeah. And so my goal is to just keep it going. And I had a really uh, helpful uh, friend editor once tell me, if you want to know how to write a, you probably heard this a million times. I had, I basically, I was a self-taught writer with a few people helping me. I started this out of the blue. So I, maybe this is what's taught in formal fiction writing school. I don't know. Okay, let's take a short break. And when we come back with David Pepper, author of A Simple Choice, David's going to share with us his secret that he's learned on how to make a page-turning thriller. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Your host, David Temple here. Hey, before we get back to the show, I thought I would throw in this one quick note. I have had authors approach me who want to actually advertise on the show. And I'm like, that's cool. I love that idea. I mean, think about it. We feature the best thriller writers in the world. You're one of the new up-and-coming thriller writers in the world to be. And you have a book coming out. Our rates are super reasonable. <laughs> We're easy to work with, as you know. And we all want to work together to make success for all of us. Just reach out to us here at The Thriller Zone at thethrillerzone at gmail.com. Let's talk rates. Let's talk details. Let's do something together in the new year. I think you'll like it. Now, back to the show. The best thrillers. 
the and now back to the show. This person said to me, you want to write a page turner. You want people to literally turn the page. Yeah. And the way you do that is you start every chapter late and every chapter early. So if the action is at lunch, don't start where they're waking up, shaving, <laughs> taking a shower, eating breakfast, driving to work, working all morning. And then at lunch, all of a sudden something crazy happens. Yeah. Start at lunch a little bit after the crazy thing started. So the reader's like, my God, what did I miss? I need to read this. Yeah. Just yeah. like at the end of that chapter, don't do a long denouement after the action. End it in a way that they want to go to the next chapter. And so yeah. every time I'm done with a book, I literally go through every single chapter and ask myself, did I start it early or late? Did I end it early or late? And I'll shave off parts of those chapters so they're very tight and efficient. And the, the purpose is to have literally a book that people just have to feel like they have to keep reading. All right. There is a, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit. There's a video on your website. I think it's right on your homepage. Uh, and you did a great job. You're standing out in front of some big fancy schmancy building, but there's a, uh, you, you reference a movie, which you're not going to mention right now, because I'm going to play a sample of it because I want to see if my listeners will catch the movie. And if you're a movie fan, you'll get it almost instantly. So here it is. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, or get busy dying. I love that. Get busy living or get busy dying. Now, with, of course, the movie Shawshank Redemption, what made you reference that particular line? Uh, first of all, I'm a, it's my favorite movie, as I say in this video. Um, and people may not know this, but the town of Mansfield, Ohio, is where most of that movie was filmed. It, it was supposed to be Maine, but it was Mansfield. Why? Because the old jail there called the Reformatory was the perf was the jail they filmed. Other other movies have been filmed there too, but but Shawshank, the Shawshank prison was the Mansfield Reformatory. And so they used the, the reformatory, a lot of the rural scenes to take place, like when when Red is walking down that road towards the end to find the rock under the tree, that's yeah. out of that's just outside of Mansfield. Um, and this is a very, very big source of pride for Mansfield, which which again, it's the when Amity Jones, my main character, moves back home, she takes a law firm job in Columbus, but she's from Mansfield. And she's always going back to Mansfield to visit her mom. And I get through it a little bit in the book. Mansfield, like many towns in America, is struggling. It's a struggling blue-collar town that's lost its manufacturing. A lot of its jobs now are now wrapped up in another jail. But a great source of its pride is Shawshank. And so the reason I use that was obviously trying to promote the book. But, but the first scene of my book is in Maine. And the second scene of my book is in Mansfield. So I thought, you know, it's it's ironic that that's also what's happening in, in, in the movie Shawshank. But in my book, you know, you're really in Maine, you're really in Mansfield. And that plot we talked about, that question literally has the characters venturing between Maine, Mansfield, Tennessee, as you know, yep. Washington. So they're all connected to all these places. But Mansfield is the heart of it. And I'll just I'll be really honest in all my books. I like to go to places that aren't your famous spy scenes, you know, London, Rome, Paris, Washington, New York. I love finding towns that have a story, have a history that are struggling 
and often in Ohio, I like basing my books in these places. Because going back to politics, many places like Mansfield are the heart of where politics are being battled right now. Right. Struggle, you know, my, my, in my prior books, my main character is a reporter for the Youngstown Vindicator. He's always talking about the struggles of Youngstown. In this case, um, um, Amity, the first scene, she shows up to Mansfield and she says, it looks kind of like the war zones I was covering when I was a soldier overseas, but there's still some hope and grit. They're fighting back. So I try and capture some of the life of these places that are, no, that are, that are too often overlooked, that are rarely in the middle of these book plots, that are normally in these sort of big, fancy places. And then I also think, again, going back to the, the, the reality of politics today, that understanding these towns also helps understand some of what's happening in politics, the decline, the sense yeah. that they're being overlooked, et cetera, et cetera, that, that my, my book tries to sort of give you a better, pre if you're not, for, if you're in a blue state somewhere and you're trying to understand the, what's happening in states like Ohio that are often, you know, the center of elections, if not the center of overall thought, here's a little glimpse into one of these places. And, and again, that's part of the reason why I, I picked Mansfield and part of the reasons why I use that clip. And, and ironically, the get busy living or get busy dying choice is different, but my book's all about a big choice as well. And it's sort of similar to the, to the uh, choice there that Andy Dufresne mentioned. Well, no, and I think it's uh, it was perfectly apropos because, uh, first of all, one of the best scenes uh, in a movie ever. Just uh, when I was rewatching it this morning, and very little – I've directed films, so I, I understand a lot of the different setups. And so that camera is only a two-shot, and it's very minimal movement. And the the pausing and the acting is just so superb. And it makes you have an interior dialogue while you're hearing it as though you're asking, what if I had been caught in the line of fire or I had reacted out of passion and I'd be ended up in prison and I'd face my whole life. And it's so funny. I, I, I don't know how many times I've seen that movie, but I found my caught myself sitting there asking those same questions. Yeah. And that's really, and, and so there's a parallel in the places, but also in my book, trying to, it's a different question to some degree, but my hope in my book was to push people to think about without being over the top about, it. I mean, right. a good book, it needs to be a good thriller that just you get through without over being overbearing. But my hope is in the same way that it happens in that movie, you're, you're forced to think about what would you do in the same situation these characters find themselves in. You just made me think of something and I've been running this through my head uh, for weeks now. <clears throat> and it's probably because I'm a self-published author, but I'm uh, working on a project now that I want to get to uh, go the traditional route and get an agent and so forth. And I think I've got the story for it. And I'm always asking myself, and, and, and I'm, I'm, I know you uh, have a similar feeling. You only have a handful of books, all profoundly powerful books under your belt. But, you know, often, and you made this reference earlier, often we go, oh, this book has to be be everything. It has to encompass everything and have this great message and this. And what if I only get one chance at it? That's a question that often gets in the monkey mind that sits on our shoulder. And when in reality, when you get down to the bottom line, tell me if you agree, it's entertainment dude it's like turning on a good movie you want to sit down escape the life that you're in be entertained for an hour and a half two hours three hours and walk away i don't have to split the atom cure cancer etc i just want to enter and i and i'm saying this in a self-reflective mode that 
we can take some of that pressure off of ourselves by just simply enjoying the ride, right? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, my first book, although it turned out well, took me a long time to write because I spent most of it the first round with all sorts of political lecturing. Not even through my character. It was like me. And one, a friend who read it said, it's got to be a story first and foremost. It's got to be characters we like. Um, the, the, the themes and points can happen. It better be subtle. Don't hit us over the head with it. But you will, again, go back to losing a reader, losing reader. If it, if, if they want to pick up a nonfiction book telling about the world, they'll read that book. That's not a novel. And so I, I did a lot. And if I were to rewrite my first book, which again, got a lot of positive reviews, I think it would be better because I spent a lot of time pulling all that stuff out. But if I started from scratch, it'd be even less of it. And so my hope is, and you know, we've talked about a lot of this stuff. So I, I don't want to leave reader people with a misimpression. Like it's got to be a good story first and foremost. It's got to be about good characters first and foremost before even plot. Yeah. If they if that's not there, forget it. You're not you're not writing a novel. Uh, but once you get there, yeah, you can have those questions or that reality come through. But it better be kind of a light touch all the way through that builds. Because if you're hitting them over the head with it, you're you're just that's really not the point of a good story. Right. And and, and a reader will, I think, I mean, I would reject it. Um, and, and I'm pretty political and I don't mind that stuff. But someone who's picked up a novel because they want to read a good story, like you said, that's the key for them. And if if other things come through with that, and that's sort of your, if you have an underlying purpose that I want people to know about this part of the world and that, let them get there. But if you hit them over the head with it, forget it. They, they won't read the book. And he, <laughs> I made myself a note so I wouldn't forget it. Um, and it and it begs this question. I so enjoyed Amity. Uh, what an interesting name, by the way. But I so enjoyed her character. And I'm like, please tell me that she's going to come back around somewhere down the road. Yeah, I, I, I have a set of characters from all these books that I create and like, and, and the good thing is they're all kind of in the same world. Yeah. But, but yeah, I mean, I do like her a lot too. Uh, yeah. My, my reporter for my first three books, I like a lot as well. He's not in this book, but it's the same world. It's the same president. So we will see, uh, you know, I have a couple of books in my mind as I move forward and we'll see who can, who can make return appearances, but I do. She's a cool character. And um, yeah. I love, I love her Ohio story. I love her. You know, she's got, I think in this book, she's got a nice arc. She learns a lot over the course of it. Uh, she's a little different at the end than when she starts as a good book would have you have you do. But you know, she's a cool, she's a cool story. I agree. But isn't that one of the things you, you said you have to have a good story, right? You, it it yeah. can't be great action or this and solely that. It has to be a great story. And I would take it one step further. And it has to be characters that we give a shit about, basically, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that's what has happened with this particular character. So uh, a mission accomplished. And, and I think that's the thing that I often walk away from. Uh, a lot of these characters that I read, I, it's amazing to me, David, how many people, characters, I walk away with and think about for weeks and weeks later. And that, to me, you couldn't get much of a better compliment than to leave me with somebody that that haunts my subconscious. Wanna, yeah. And, you know, 
Someone said to me once, again, when I was kind of self-teaching how to do this, people will, if they really like a character, if they're cheering for them, they want to learn more about them, there's some, they'll stick through just about any plot. If they don't care about the character for some reason, if you fail to create a character they care about, they probably won't read a plot about them, no matter what, how crazy the plot is. And that, that, that connection to a character is so important. By the way, one thing I, I and, and I agree with that, and that's something that, Again, when I wrote that first book, after that advice, I rewrote the entire book to give you a character like that because my first book was too plot heavy and not. That's why the person said that. But one interesting going back to politics, and I have questions about the book. Same with politics. I have seen people run for the offices that no one cares about, but because the the candidate is interesting and authentic, by the end of that campaign, people are cheering. To vote for an office they never thought was important because it's the character of that candidate who excites them. Just yeah. like you can have a really interesting office, a bad candidate, no one cares. So I find that that is a lesson for life, probably beyond politics, business and others. If that person is interesting and, and gets people excited about who they are, people will, will actually get excited about helping them succeed. And if that character is a dud, that they'll move on. So I think that's a that's something I've learned about writing that also applies to many other walks of life. 100%. Well, as we start to wrap it up and I, I want to I'm going to I'm going to jump off of that advice point because this is a question I ask all of my authors who visit the show. You've referred to this in a number of different ways, but what's your best piece of advice for aspiring writers? Often in book talks, I will read the most brutal rejection letter I ever got. I, I don't know if I can call it up right now, but um, just on the first book, which, which by the way, at the end of the year of my first book, the Wall Street Journal called it the underdog for the political thriller of the year. Okay. Nice. A year and a half before, an agent literally said to me that there was nothing that could be done to save me in trying to write that book. Okay. The most brutal uh, critique I've ever gotten in my life. Like, awful. Just knocked me down for days. I thought maybe I should just stop writing. And a year later, I get that review. Right. But I also, in that person's email, he had included between the very harsh language about how it was the worst book ever. (laughs) He also included some small critiques that I, after I recovered, that I sort of did a little research and figured out some of what we talked about. Character. My plot was like from a 30,000 foot view. I wasn't really in the mind of the character in the way I need to be. And I rewrote the whole book to be first person based upon what he said. So the lesson is a double lesson. One, you will get ripped. Okay. You will get brutal criticisms. Right. And like me, do not let that stop you. I could have quit when I got that thing from a professional who was basically telling me you're just not cutting it. Number two, though, anyone who reads your book, especially if someone's in the business, they're doing you a favor, even if they're ripping you, (laughs) because in his criticism, he did identify things that I need to do better. Sure. And if I hadn't have in the end kept going, but listened to some of his pieces of criticism, I don't think I ever would have made the book good. So it's, it's sort of a balance. Don't let anyone stop you as you get your criticism. But also know that anyone who reads you it reads your book it, it is 
doing you a favor. When you're first getting started, not a lot of people are going to read it. And if they do, and they come back with things that feel harsh at first, my guess is they're probably onto something. Like I yeah. always said, if one reader stumbles at this point, you might might have just lost a lot of readers. So listen to the criticism as harsh as be and, and try and accommodate for it. Because I did that, I think I took a book that might not have gone anywhere and actually it's what began all my novel writing ever since. Well, I'm so glad you didn't listen to the naysayers and you followed your passion because uh, you definitely have the gift. So there. Thank you very much. I yeah. appreciate you saying that. Fooey on them. All right. Here's the fun part of the show. This is uh, rapid fire questions. We ask a few questions. It's off the top of your head. Number one, you and the family take the last road trip vacation before the summer is finally over and it's practically there. You get to choose the music. What's the band or genre that you will be listening to on the road trip? Uh, my road trip favorite is the Eagles. Yes. Nice. Is, yeah. In fact, I was driving back with my kids from Indiana the other day and I had Taking It Easy, Playing Loud. There you go. Oh, God. That Hotel California. All right. What's one of the favorite books in your current TBR stack that you are particularly enjoying right now? Like you're like, oh, I was not expecting this. I am fascinated with this topic of history and the censoring of history that's so a current debate right now. And and I bought this book from James Lowen. It's called, I think, Lies That Our Teachers Told Us in History. And it's sort of going back and unpacking reality about our history and myths. So this is nonfiction. Right. But I'm and I may I'm, I'm thinking of writing a novel that tries to draw this out, but but to go back in time and and understand, you know, how much of our history we've hidden from ourselves and how much of what we think happened is sort of a myth. And so it's a I just started it, but I can already tell a few chapters in it's it's a, a fascinating book. And I'm always looking for the the aha book. Yeah. That forever changes how you view our country or some part of our country. And this is clearly going to be one of those books. Here is one. Uh, now, this has nothing to do with writing, but what is one of the best pieces of advice you've ever received just in life? Oh, that's a that's a tough one. You know, I'll say that it, it, it's the beginning of the school year. So my dad and I have a five and an eight year old. So I, I'm going to do this tonight. Every year, didn't matter, first grade, second grade, third grade, my dad would say, okay, kids, I had two brothers and sister. This is the year where it all starts to count. Forget last year. It's this year. And he'd always give us, you know, three pieces of advice. And the first two were always, you know, do your best and yeah. do the right thing. And the third one would always change. So I think as a dad, that's going to be what I pass along to, to you, not just your listeners, but my kids tonight. So in a way, he was saying you can still, you know, you have a chance to reset. Yeah. Um, so it was always third grade was the most important year, then fourth grade, then fifth grade. But those first two of just working hard and doing the right thing always stuck with us. So that's that's pretty general, I know. But that was that was the advice that I never would forget. Awesome. All right. What always makes you laugh? Pretty much no matter what. I mean, my kids keep me laughing all the time. Perfect. I'm also, I mean, not, I know you're in the entertainment business. I can watch some of the dumbest comedies 500 <laughs> times. Um, I was I was excited yesterday, not to name drop, but Ben Stiller started following me on Twitter for some reason. Oh, wow. 
And I'm an immediately going through Zoolander lines. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I could, if you had Zoolander on tomorrow uh, or on an hour, I'd have to watch. So yeah. really bad comedies that, that are probably not like <laughs> what people my age should be watching. Yeah. I can watch. I mean, I guess it's a release valve. I could watch them all day and they keep me laughing. I laugh on the hundredth time. That's nice. Lastly, if you could co-host a podcast with me and bring along anyone, living or past, to be our guest and be allowed to ask anything you'd want to know, who would that person be and why? Could be anybody. Okay, that's a good question. I mean, Hmm? again, I'm going to sound like uh, sort of a history nerd here, but we know a lot about Lincoln. Mm -hmm. We know a lot about a lot of presidents. But a guy I've been reading about lately, and this goes back to that, that book I mentioned uh, on history. A guy that's been so overlooked in history is Ulysses Grant, not because of his work as a general, but as president. And this goes back to sort of other things. I write nonfiction as well about democracy and voter suppression. I teach election law as well. And what, what I would love to talk to Ulysses Grant about is Unlike later when we got Jim Crow, when Ulysses Grant was president and he saw that the Southern states were really starting to suppress and engage in violence around the newly registered black voters of the Southern states, he didn't sit back and simply watch. He really cracked down on it. It, it, You go back to the time where he was alive and you see how much he brought to bear on the South to protect black voters. And it's something that's totally lost in history, but it's, and I say this partly because he grew up right around here. There's a, his birthplace is probably an hour from where I live oh, wow. to go back and, and understand why he felt so passionately because it really mattered. And it was only a generation later that people in his same position, Republicans from the North, they stopped fighting. And that's why we got voter suppression. That's what we got Jim Crow. But you look back at you. So of all, I literally have two Ulysses Grant biographies behind me because, and I skip, I skip the civil war part to get to the presidential part because you want to understand what drove him to be so passionate way before most people were about making sure these newly registered black voters actually got to vote so much so that he brought troops down to stop the KKK from stopping them. And the reason I bring about this is I really worry today about attacks on democracy in our country and elsewhere And I feel like we got a lot to learn from someone who went much further, going back to being tough, being strong, I'm talking about Putin. He went much further to protect democracy at that time than a lot of people understand or give him credit for even now. So that would be one person that would be a fascinating conversation and, and what he would tell us to do today when we are also seeing democracy under attack. That would be fascinating. And you opened a door for a whole different conversation that unfortunately we don't have time for. Right. <laughs> yeah, uh, talking about well, that was just my honest answer. I know yeah. it's a no, no, no. topic, but totally love it. And folks, I do want to say if you want to learn more, simply go to davidpepper.com. And the book again is a simple choice. And I'm going to add my own personal blurb. I mean, it's going to be hard to fit it in with Hillary Rodham Clinton and, and Bill Clinton on the back. But if you need an extra one, this mine would be if you enjoy well-constructed thrillers with pages that pull you in and race past, read a simple choice. Bam. Thank you so much, David. David, this was awesome. And I thank you so much for your time. Boy, you're a fascinating guy. This is a great read. It takes no time at all. And uh, what a delight 
chatting with you. Thanks. A lot of fun to, to be with you as well. I don't know about you, but I feel like I just went to class. Thank you again to David Pepper and the book, A Simple Choice. The choice is simple. Should I read the book or not? Of course you should read the book. Here, I just made it up. I just made the choice for you. <laughs> All right. Coming up on next week's show, man, here's a guy that was on my show way back at the beginning. I have been following him from a distance. He moved to some great exotic sexy beautiful island can't recall the name of it but anyway the guy has a heck of a hit on his hand adam hamdy the other side of night this is a book that a lot of people are saying i really can't quite describe it i haven't read quite enough yet to say that i can describe it but i can tell you it is unlike anything you've ever read so if you're a fan of adam hamdy and uh then you're going to definitely want to be on next week's show when we talk about the other side of night. All right. One little piece of business to share with you. Um, we are now on YouTube. Did you know that? Yeah. You can actually watch the show like my wife. <laughs> Tammy loves to watch the show. I go to great lengths to make sure it's looking good as best I can. So please join me. It is at youtube.com slash the thriller zone. All right, easy. You can also go to our website, thethrillerzone.com, where you can see and listen. But if you're not on podcasting channels like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify, etc., and you want to watch it, swing on by. Be sure you subscribe. Click that button. And then if you like to have the alerts to let you know when the new episodes drop, hit the bell. Anyway, it does us a lot of good, and we appreciate it. Tell you what else we really appreciate are the reviews. When you send us a review, yeah, we dance around the office. Da, 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 da. Yeah, we got another review. We're pretty excited about that. It gives us a little bit of a pat on the back that we're doing a good job, that you like the show, that you you take the two minutes to leave us a review. And where can you do that? Good question. You can leave your review on Apple, uh, Google. I, I guess there's a lot of different places you can, you can leave it right on our website, thethrillerzone.com, and you'll get printed right there on a home page. So, Take a minute, leave us a review. It really means a lot. We appreciate it. All right. As I always say, I've got a stack of reading to do, so I'm going to scoot on out. But uh, I'm your host, David Temple, and I'll see you next time for another edition of The Thriller Zone. The Thriller Zone has been presented by The Story Factory and the visionary genre-bending debut novel Grand Theft AI by James Cox. The Matrix meets Blade Runner. Grand Theft AI is available now for pre-order from your favorite bookseller.